Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream. It is live stream one, two, three, four, number one hundred. If I have that correct, is that, is that it accurate? is one hundred. We have entered the triple digits here at Dark Horse. My goodness, that seems like a lot of live streaming. We have been sitting in these chairs a lot. A lot in these chairs. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. But you know, they're good chairs, and uh, they're good chairs. I think yeah. uh, it's it's an accomplishment, and I feel I feel I feel good about it. The sitting is an accomplishment? No, no, no. Not the sitting, the live streaming, yeah. that amount of content. Um, and anyway, it's been uh, it's been kind of a wild ride. It has. And we are ever grateful for uh, the vast majority of feedback that we get about what we are doing here. Um, today, we are going to talk about uh, medical misinformation and fake news and censorship. We are going to talk about 100 years of the culture war and the use of the props of science to drive change. Uh, a couple of items from what I'm calling this week in the absurd and appalling and uh, how one newspaper in Australia is framing what you should do after you get vaccinated. Plus, we want to end up uh, today's live stream before we move into the Q&A with a lovely piece of fan mail that we received. Um the book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, is in stock at Amazon and has been for a few days and looks like it will remain so. So if you have been waiting to pick that up, please, uh, you, you can do that now. If you've gotten it, if you've read it, if you've enjoyed it, please consider uh, giving it some love on Amazon. Uh, we also have uh, this, this fine publication, Root Quarterly, which we have talked about before, is a um, is a beautiful, glossy arts and culture quarterly out of Philadelphia. And they did a long form interview with us and also have an excerpt from the book in uh, volume three, issue number two. So if you're looking for um, for more um, on us or just want are interested in a beautiful magazine, this Root Quarterly uh, has, has that. If you are watching on YouTube, consider switching to Odyssey. That's where the live chat is happening. You can ask questions for our Q&A at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. Consider joining our Patreons. New products are coming soon at the store, store store.darkhorsepodcast.org. Consider joining me at Natural Selections, uh, naturalselections.substack.com. This week I posted and made publicly available my read of The Boat Accident, the near-death story that we did not relate in the book. And uh, for paying subscribers, I started putting some links to um, you know, some things that I've run into recently that caught my eye on COVID and on authoritarianism. And this week we have three ads that are supporting us and the podcast. So without further ado... Let us launch into those. All right. Our first sponsor this week, uh, our our three sponsors are Vivo Barefoot, uh, MD Hearing Aid, and Four Sigmatic, all sponsors you've heard us talk about before. And as we have said before, we do not take uh, ads for sponsors that we uh, can't assess either directly or with someone who is close to us. So Vivo Barefoot. Make shoes for feet. That may sound unremarkable until you realize that most shoes are not made for your feet. They are made for someone's idea of what feet should look like and do and be constrained by. Most shoemakers have no idea what feet are or what they should be able to do. Vivo Barefoot creates regenerative footwear so that you can have experiences that bring you closer to nature and to your natural potential. We've been wearing Vivo Barefoot for several months now, and we love these shoes. They're beyond comfortable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You get better tactile feedback from the sur- surfaces. I said feedback, didn't I? You should have said feedback. That's the right way to say it. You get better tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on than with other shoes. And they cause no pain at all, these shoes, because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They're fantastic. It's 
kind of ridiculous how fantastic they are. They have a range of footwear for kids and adults for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. Your feet are the product of millions of years of evolution attached to bipedal organisms. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. But modern shoes are overly cushioned and strangely shaped, and that has negatively impacted foot function and is contributing to a health crisis, frankly, one in which people move less than they might in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Vivo barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin in terms of the uh, the materials to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. Uh, recently, I was outside not wearing Vivo barefoot, and I tripped on a concrete edge and banged myself up, including cutting my right ankle open on a piece of exposed pipe. That wasn't fun. Uh, exactly. I cut it open exactly where I still have a scar from this major reconstructive surgery I had when I was 13 years old. That foot hasn't felt entirely right since. It's been a week and a half or so, except that when I'm in my Vivo barefoots, the pain is non-existent, which is fascinating, and it wasn't something I was expecting. I don't walk around inside the house in shoes, so the first time I went to put on shoes and went for a walk um, after that, I was shocked to find um, that the pain was gone. Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp. Their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild on it. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive 20 percent off offer. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love these shoes as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash Dark Horse. Now, I got to add something. Go for it. Uh, Zach and I were traveling this week, and we were at a very fine Mexican restaurant, and the waiter came up noticing my Vivo barefoot shoes and said, those are great shoes. And I said, yeah, they're really cool. And I started to explain how one feels as if they are barefoot inside. And he said, oh, I know. And he pointed down to his own Vivo, Vivo barefoot shoes. And he says, how did you learn about them? And I said, actually, they sponsor our podcast. He says, wait a second, you look familiar. What podcast? I said Darkos. He says, no way. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so in any case, Marcos identified the shoes out in the field, not knowing who he was talking to. And uh, anyway, but he knowing is, the shoes he was talking to, knowing the shoes, he said he was on his third pair. Mm. Um, so anyway, he has been, he has been wearing them for even longer than we have. And he is a devoted fan. So anyway, uh, awesome. Hey, Marco. And uh, all right, next ad, next ad. We'll see whether or not my dyslexia is flaring up. <laughs> uh, this ad is for MD hearing aid. Everyone can empathize with what it feels like to be left out of a conversation that others are enjoying. Many of us, even if we don't experience hearing loss, sometimes need to crank the volume up on a show beyond what other people need. Hearing loss is invisible, quite literally, to those of us without it. This week's sponsor, MD Hearing Aid, is not a product that either of us need, but we asked a friend with hearing loss to try it out, and we'll share her testimony below. MD Hearing Aid is a FDA-registered, rechargeable hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. The average price of a hearing aid in America is over $2,400 a pair, but their Volt Plus model, that is MD Hearing Aid's Volt Plus model, is just $299.99 uh, with each pair uh, uh, when you buy a pair. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but could not afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. 
These hearing aids aim to fit so well that no one will know you're wearing them. The rechargeable batteries last up to 30 hours. They're water resistant and up to three feet of water, and you don't need a prescription or a doctor's appointment. You buy it directly from the source where audiologists and licensed hearing aid special, uh, specialists are available seven days a week. MD Hearing Aid has knocked the price down on hearing aids by recognizing about 95% of people who need a hearing aid only require a few settings. So they simplified the need for certain components not needed by most people, and they cut out the middleman. Uh, so here's the testimonial from our friend uh, who has substantial hearing loss loss and relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try the product and this is what she said. She said, quote, with my particular type of hearing loss, a deep male voice in a noisy room is the hardest situation for me to hear and understand speech. I wore uh, MD hearing aid uh, to have a conversation with a deep voiced man in a room with a lot of white noise. MD hearing aid passed the test at my conversation partner's voice was clear and understandable to me at a price point that was under a thousand dollars. I was amazed at how effective they are. Um, so she thought they were excellent hearing aids. Now, MD Hearing Aid has brought affordable hearing to over 600,000 satisfied customers. Plus, they offer a 45-day risk-free trial with a 100% money-back guarantee. Go to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their buy one, get one at two, wait, buy one, get one, $299.99 offer. Plus, they are adding a free extra charging case, $100 value, just for listeners of the Dark Horse podcast. So head to, head, head to mdhearingaid.com and use your promo code, code DARKHORSE, or you can call them at 1-833-772-1392. That's 1-833-772-1392. All right, final ad, then we'll get to the content, guys, I promise. Final sponsor is Four Sigmatic, a wellness company known for its delicious mushroom coffee. It sounds weird, kind of off-putting. I was skeptical myself, but I've been drinking it lately most mornings, and it's really good. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee contains organic, fair-trade, single-origin Arabica coffee with both lion's mane and shaga mushrooms as well. Four Sigmatic's Grand Mushroom Coffee with Lion's Mane adds a little something, some crispness and focus. The world just seems a little more clear after drinking it. It's delicious. Just like regular coffee, you can't taste the mushrooms. This tastes just like your favorite coffee, dark and nutty and delicious. Four Sigmatic also makes protein powders that are made from pea, hemp, chia, pumpkin, and coconut proteins, and again, several mushrooms as well. I'm not a fan of protein powders. In fact, I've never used them um, or of supplements in general. I vastly prefer to get my nutrition from food, as you will know if you're longtime listeners or if you've read our book. But I've been making this banana, peanut butter, and cacao nib smoothie sometimes, and I've begun adding a scoop of their peanut butter protein powder, and it's delicious and nutritious. All Four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Every single batch is third-party lab-tested to ensure its purity and safety so you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. And Four Sigmatic has a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. So we've got an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee for Dark Horse listeners. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, go to foursigmatic.com darkhorse. This offer is only for Dark Horse listeners. You'll save up to 40%, get free shipping. So go to F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash darkhorse to fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. Did you say cacao nibs? I did say cacao nibs. I did not. You, it's, it's either 
cow nibs or cacao nibs. I uh, promise you, you, I do not put cow nibs in my smoothies. Um, here at the home of Dark Horse, our children are well aware that we usually say cacao nibs. Um, <laughs> but I decided not to say cacao nibs in the read for that ad. Yes. Should I in the future? Uh, I think in the future it would be mm-hmm. safer. Peanut butter, banana, and cacao nibs. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. All right. Done. That was easy. Yeah. Request up, upgrade uh, installed and uh, we'll do next time. Upgrade installed. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no tour of the new features. No, and nor did you have to wait for midnight for it to happen. You're right. Or overnight or whenever. Whenever, it whenever is that, that it is that they hijack your phone and install the new malware or it's, whatever it is that they exactly. do. I think it's far later than midnight. Most of us would. Oh, it's many well of us past midnight. Yeah. yeah. It's later than we think. Yeah. <laughs> It is later than we think. Speaking of which, um, you were um, thinking about beginning the hour. We're going to spend some substantial time this hour on uh, thinking about our landscape, how medical misinformation and fake news and censorship are all kind of swirling in the ether and the ethos and uh, how to how to interpret this moment. Well, I already feel a little a little back on my heels. I wouldn't have said I was thinking about how to start the hour. I would say I was fuming about how to start the hour. And anyway, that just sets us in motion in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I, I have been uh, watching uh, presumably the same movie that many of you have been watching where uh, history gets ever more mm-hmm. absurd. And in any case, you know, I've started to focus on this issue of consensus, and I know our listeners will have heard me say several times, there are two versions of consensus. There's a version of consensus that's the natural version, where something that may start out perfectly heretical becomes conventional wisdom because the evidence for it is overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. This is a very natural phenomenon. We've seen it with all kinds of things, jumping genes, uh, germ theory of disease, plate tectonics. These are ideas that have become standard by virtue of the fact that no matter what they sounded like at first, they became unavoidably uh, recognized as true because of all the evidence. That's the normal version of consensus. And in fact, I would say it's what we mean when we say the word consensus. There is some other thing masquerading as consensus that requires intense coercion, right? And the point is, it is almost the exact opposite of consensus. If to say that plate tectonics is the consensus in geology is to say that it's so obvious now to us that everybody besides some fringe believes it to be correct, then the point is you can infer from the degree to which we are all converged on the same uh, conclusion that it must carry an awful lot of weight. It doesn't make it true, right? It could be invalidated by something we would learn in the future, but it means that basically a person with the current best toolkit will arrive at this conclusion by virtue of what happens when you feed the evidence into the analytical software. Well, well that's exactly it. If I can just interrupt for a moment, sure. it's that the weight of the evidence, um, you know, uh, prior evidence and new evidence that arrives fits with the model that is plate tectonics. And uh, what you don't have whenever you invoke plate tectonics, and you know, this is a slightly weird example for us to be using because I don't I've never attended a geology conference. You know, I, I don't know what actually happens there. Um, but you know, whenever anyone invokes plate tectonics, there aren't you know a tiny number of people in the room, presumably going, yeah, but what about the hmm? right? Like, what about the evidence that, that it's, not, it's not what you say it is? Right. Right. Well, and there's a delicate. First of all, I should say I also have never been to a geology <laughs> conference, though I'm 
completely confident it rocks, but uh, hey, good. That did not elicit a glare. I, I feel glare? I feel no. I got away with it. All right, um, but but the, the point is maybe, but not that one. The the implication is that the evidence that somebody who is well-equipped in this area, given the evidence, will arrive here, unless some radical new idea that better explains the evidence, you know, as we say, either explains more or assumes less while explaining the same amount. Either one of those things will do to displace plate tectonics or any other hypothesis that becomes a theory by virtue of the evidence. But the consensus implies that this is the theory. It's as close as we get to a fact, right? Mm -hmm. That this is the theory that accounts best for the evidence that we see and assumes the least, right? The consensus implies that. But presumably, everybody gets that if we said, well, you know, what is the consensus amongst these, um, these rocket scientists that that rocket is safe enough to get people to the International Space Station in one piece, right? And if you saw that there were people standing behind each of them with the gun, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. and they all swore that rocket is safe enough, you might say, well, I don't actually know if the rocket is safe enough. I know I heard every rocket scientist on that stage tell me it was, but I also know that they may not have been free to say otherwise. And so yeah. the very fact that you find intense coercion surrounding a claimed consensus mm -hmm. is in and of itself reason to be worried to slow down and say what don't i know would would the conclusion of the the scientists on the stage be any different if they were actually liberated to say whatever they thought and there was no negative penalty that would come to them other than the reputational risk of saying something out of step yeah and so, did you have something you wanted to... Well, I've forgotten, this is going to be a little messy, because I, I thought I had the notes, and I can't remember. There was a, a podcast that we did this week that was really, really wonderful, and I'm not going to remember any of the particulars, and I'm embarrassed. Um, maybe while you're talking, I'll look it up. Um, it's not out yet, um, but uh, the host we were talking to is a pilot, and he said that some of the reason... Uh, that flying is so safe is not just because um, regulations in the U.S. from the FAA and you know and 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 such um, are uh, intact and useful, but actually that the culture is one in which you don't just have the and again this language isn't quite what he said you don't just have the right to object when something seems to be going a bit miss amiss you have the obligation obligation to challenge i believe to challenge so yeah. you don't just have the right to challenge your superior you have the obligation to challenge anyone if you see something uh, that doesn't seem right to you and this is you know a consensus is a consensus if there is not just i mean certainly if there's an obligation to challenge but you at least bare minimum need the right to challenge um, and to be left then with a sense of like okay is this consensus can we hear from the people who object do we know what fraction of the people in the population actually have challenged this right and actually it's a great example um not only is it implicated in how aviation, or at least commercial aviation, has become so incredibly safe, mm -hmm. but the exceptions to the rule, the places where commercial aviation has not been tremendously safe, very frequently show the pattern where the obligation to challenge is overridden, right? And so uh, he had an example of an accident, which I actually can't, can't recall which accident it was, 
But I immediately mm -hmm. came up with two. You know, I have a long-standing sort of passing interest in aviation, and uh, Bob Trivers, our undergraduate advisor, wrote a, a famous paper on self-deception in which he used the crash of the Washington, D.C., uh, flight into the Potomac, I guess, Yes. Um, as an example. And in that case, the co-pilot had understood that they did not have sufficient speed to generate the lift necessary to take off and being outranked by the captain. The captain overrode him and they plunged uh, into the water. Yes. There's another example in Tenerife where a very famous captain who not only formally outranked everybody, but because he had been featured in commercials for the airline and was, you know, the go-to guy, got impatient with the tower uh, and overrode them and just started his takeoff, not seeing mm -hmm. that there was a plane uh, parked halfway down the runway. Anyway, it, the point is the obligation to challenge is the safety factor. Yeah, so let me just plug this. Again, It's our, our episode is not out, but this was Dose of Leadership with Richard Rearson, uh, in which he says is leadership interviews with today's most relevant leaders. He's, he's terrific, and this was a really great conversation. Yeah, I thought it was a great conversation too, and I was super impressed. I'd not heard of him before, but uh, I was very impressed with the depth of his thinking and his interview style it was really, it's Indeed. a podcast I'll be paying attention to yeah. going forward. But in any case, so all of this is beginning to, gel. And I don't know how likely it is that the public is going to figure out what's going on or that they're even, you know, they're so incentivized not to figure out what's going on that many who see it may simply uh, keep it to themselves. But a number of things happened this week that I thought were noteworthy in this regard. Um, they may seem unrelated at first, but hey, Zach, could you put up that Zero Hedge article? So Zach is going to put up a Zero Hedge article reporting on, just out of luck, a friend of ours, Colin Wright, biologist, uh, who was had content removed from, I believe, Instagram and Twitter this week. And the content in question was a paper that asserted that males and females are not equal on average with respect to strength and therefore their capacity in sport. Now, this is a fact. This is not controversial, or at least it would not have been controversial three years ago, five years ago. This is a fact, and anybody who said otherwise would have been um, a, fr a person of the fringe. Now, you can make other hypotheses. You and I have both heard really stupid ones, like, um, you know, the males are um, keeping the food from the females, and therefore the females are not developing the strength that they would otherwise develop. That's a that's a good one. That's a valid hypothesis. It's just wrong, right? It's, it's demonstrably it's patently wrong. Patently laughable, right? Well, it's but, patently laughable, and yeah. it's easily falsified because you can control for this. You can simply say, in circumstances where we can demonstrate females have equal access to food, do they still end up on average not as strong? And you will, of course, find out that they do. You will also find out that the evidence from other species reflects this pattern in uh, in those species um, in which males displace uh, other males in competition for mates. It's the millions of years of unending uh, patriarchy with no gaps at all in any culture at any moment. Man, Hypothesis. would I have loved to sit in on the uh, early multicellular life meetings of the patriarchy. That would have been interesting. Did they not take notes? I mean, don't you have access to those, <laughs> those back issues effectively? <laughs> 
no. encoded in the genes somewhere, <laughs> possibly. But in any case, yeah. the absurdity of removing this content yeah. is obviously remarkable. But what's even, what is even more remarkable is the basis on which they claimed that they did it, which was under their hate speech policy. Right now, this is not only absurd, the very idea that a factual claim at all, even if it was wrong, a factual claim based on a scientific paper that says that males are on average stronger than females could possibly be hate speech. Right. It's a, this is a, this is a discussion of, of, a, of, a, of a matter of fact. So, well, I mean, I think if I if I were to try, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not steel manning. I, I can't do it. But if I'm if I'm going to try to understand what got them to that's hate speech. Yeah, it's going to be um, the trans activists having compelled some number of people. And again, you know, not not the vast majority of the tiny number of humanity that's actually trans who wants to be left alone already to live their lives. Um, but the trans activists um, who have decided um, that sex is the same as gender and that how you feel um, about, you know, what sex you are actually changes what sex you are. Uh, and so, you know, the, the idea that, and this is actually, uh, I'll, I'll save it for the, uh, what I call it this week and um, the absurd and the um, atrocious or something. Um, one of it, one of the examples is exactly in this, in this framing, but it, it, it attempts to obliterate the depending on how you count 500 to 2 billion year old differentiation between the two sexes as if the opinions of some modern humans has any has any say in this has any say in it and what's more even if you were to take that steel man and i think it's about as good as you're going to get but even if you were to take it and then you were to go out and ask people purely on the basis of whether they felt male or female to uh, lift as large a weight as they could, right, you would find that those who arrive at the conclusion that they are male by virtue of how they feel rather than by virtue of what gametes they produce or what chromosomes they have or any of those other factors, you would still find an overwhelming correlation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's also a misunderstanding of statistics and, and uh, mistaking individuals for population-level differences. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing that really irks me about this is there is a way in which those who ostensibly are attempting to defend some vulnerable group very frequently rob the people who need the protection most, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if we just decide that any transgression by a male against a female of any sexual nature, right? Everything from a cat call to, uh, you know, a tap on the tush or whatever it is, if we just say that this is all equivalently horrifying, mm -hmm. then we are in fact robbing people of the protections against the most serious stuff, yep. which would be something like rape, right? So the point is either there has to be an ability to deal with the spectrum of indecency mm -hmm. or what you're effectively doing is transferring protection from rape victims and potential rape victims to people mm -hmm. who don't like the way they're being looked at. And the point yeah. is, no, 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 the protections really do belong concentrated against the most horrifying behavior. No question about it. So don't you dare reapportion them, right? Um, and in this case, what we're doing is we're actually, by boosting something factual into the realm of hate speech, 
we are actually now robbing the category of hate speech with it with with from we are robbing it of the ability to declare something false right mm. the idea that something is abhorrent and false and that that would be a necessary precondition to it being hate speech right we're not turning this into an arbitrary category that is an insane degradation of the concept to the to the extent that we all understand that there is something called hate speech that it may be very difficult to deal with it because of first amendment protections but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist mm -hmm. we've all heard it right mm -hmm. so the this is just this is a matter of utmost insanity and the reason that this circles back around to this other topic is that the degradation of the term hate speech is actually an exact analog for what they have now done to the concept of medical misinformation. Mm. Because just as hate speech now apparently can contain facts that were uncontroversial you know, a few years ago, the concept of medical misinformation is obviously no bar to uh, discussions of things that are the result of scientific evidence that suggests a conclusion. They're, in fact, forbidden in the YouTube, YouTube terms of service, right. right? You can't say certain things. It doesn't matter whether there's a scientific paper that says, hey, this is the conclusion. You're not allowed to talk about it on YouTube. So that destruction of these categories, you know, right? Medical misinformation really ought to mean, hey, this is false right? Mm -hmm. And hate speech ought to mean also, this is wrong and vile, right? The fact that we are going to destroy these categories in the pursuit of I don't even know what is utterly frightening. Yeah. Um, I think that we are going to be returning to this topic of consensus next week. Uh, I have some things I've been thinking about with regard to what, what all conditions render something a consensus in, in medicine land. What we're seeing right now is a very particular, and frankly, this should be super obvious to people, that a consensus that has arrived at quickly, behind closed doors, we've said this many times before on this podcast, right? A consensus that has arrived at very quickly, uh, in which there are claims being made that could not possibly be known because the nature of the time span is such that you cannot know, for instance, what long-term effects there might be quickly behind closed doors in which there is no ability to for outsiders to assess the analysis done in which only the products of the behind closed doors conversations are presented uh, with the uh, with the sort of props of science you know with the, you know someone has the relevant degree someone is wearing the relevant lab coat or has the glassware right uh, this is then this is then taken to the populace who are told to follow the science right this is this is follow the rapid consensus that we are cloaking in science. It's different from following science. Right. It's not following science. And what they really mean is follow the science or else. Mm -hmm. Right. And actually, we can see the or else factor here, which showed up in a couple of really jarring places this week. Um, so, Zach, do you want to put up uh, the FLCC notice that I sent you? So what this is, is the FLCCC, yep, it's three Cs. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance. Alliance, something. yeah. yeah. Um, the FLCCC had their PayPal account suspended or canceled or whatever. So what we have here is a group of doctors 
who hold a heterodox position. Now, it's actually one held by thousands of doctors. Mm -hmm. But the problem is they have been unsuccessful. The big they that runs YouTube and associated properties has been unsuccessful at silencing the FLCCC. And the reason they have been unsuccessful is that these are highly credible doctors with a tremendous amount of on-the-ground experience, tremendous number of lives saved because they have innovated new standards of care for COVID, right? So people want to listen to what the, not everyone, but mm -hmm. many of us want to listen to what the FLCCC has to say. They and have so, relevant clinical experience and they are meeting success right. in their clinical experience. In their clinical experience, demonstrable mm -hmm. success. And so the point is, oh, well, the attack that drives them into obscurity um, by using the terms of service of the various platforms has been unsuccessful. The propaganda campaign that has been used to blur the distinction between them and another group associated with Trump that has a similar sounding name. Mm, All of these right. things have been ineffective. And so what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to allow them to speak, but not be supported by people who want to hear what they have to say, right? We're so actually did you say what the screen showed? Because it was, it was very small and there are some people listening and not watching. It was especially small for them. Uh, the ones who were just listening. But yeah, so the screen shows a tweet in which the FLCCC reveals that PayPal has suspended their account. This is not the first time this has happened, right? For example, WikiLeaks has faced the oh. same... Uh, this is the first time it's happened to the FLCCC. I believe that is correct. But the basic point is there's some force that wants to create an artificial consensus, and it likes to use the lightest hand possible right? If it can drive you into obscurity with the terms of service of the various platforms on which you might choose to talk to people, it will certainly do that. But if it has to get in the way of your livelihood very directly by interfering with people's ability to use a credit card to support you or to use PayPal or any of these things, it will do it. And those aren't the ultimate layers. There are layers even below that that we will see. I mean, we saw uh, various things pulled uh, the, um, uh, for example, Amazon Web Services that uh, didn't allow certain alternatives to Twitter uh, to exist um, on their service. There's lots of places to. When, when are we talking? During the election. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So things were. Uh, during people this, were during the last presidential people election. People were thrown off about. of Twitter. They showed up on another platform, and then that platform suddenly found it couldn't use Amazon Web Services as a host. And so the point is, there are lots of choke points right? We haven't seen them all yet. Some of them we've seen very occasionally, and some of them we see regularly, like this terms of service nonsense. Mm -hmm. Here's another one that I found absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, can you put up the paper, the Wayback Machine uh, that I sent you, Zach? Here we have a paper. Unfortunately, I'm going to be unable to read it on the screen that tiny, but this is a paper by Jessica Rose and Peter McCullough. These are both doctors. I can read the title from here. Um, yeah, go ahead. A report on myocarditis adverse events in the U.S. Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, VAERS, in association with COVID-19 injectable biological products. So this is a peer-reviewed paper that Jessica and Peter um, are had published. And Elsevier, the publisher, has now withdrawn this paper. It hasn't withdrawn it formally. What it's done is put up a notice in its place. Zach, could you put up the notice? Temporary removal. 
and just then. Yeah, temporary removal. And then can you read the oh, line? Boy. The publisher regrets that the article has been temporarily removed. A replacement will appear as soon as possible. I really, that's tiny from here. I can't, I can't. Yeah, well, the <laughs> last like thing, the last thing it says is that when the paper is put back up, it will contain a notice about why it was removed uh, if it is not fully reinstated. So mm-hmm. this is very exotic. Here we have two yeah. highly what qualified... What journal was this? Oh, it was published in Current Problems in Cardiology. Current Problems in Cardiology. So just, just so people who aren't academics or, or doctors know, Elsevier is one of, if not the largest academic publisher. Oh, it's better it than is, that. Uh, okay, but, that's, but it's also true what I just said. It's absolutely true. <laughs> yes. uh, it is also, I believe, the oldest academic publisher. This is by its own account, right? You know who they what, claim? What is? Elsevier. Elsevier, what is by its own account? Elsevier, by its own account, is the oldest academic publishing house in existence, and they proudly proclaim themselves Galileo's publisher. Now, if one, um, How, wow, yes, if one <laughs> okay. delves deep enough, you find out that that's a little bit of a dubious claim that Elsevier is the name of something that did not have a continuous existence. But nonetheless, for a publisher that okay. wishes. Mm-hmm. To you know, to wave Galileo Flame the mantle at us. of publishing Galileo. Wow, right. Um, that is a remarkable failure. Mm-hmm. So I've never seen anything like that. Uh, that removal. I've never, and you know, I spend, I spend a fair bit of my time looking at academic papers on on Elsevier's site and other places, and I've never seen anything like that. And it reveals the whole bankruptcy of this entire. Uh, I don't even want to call it a discipline. It's many disciplines participating in the same failure. Mm-hmm. What exactly were were Rose and McCullough supposed to do with their finding regarding myocarditis other than publish it where other cardiologists could scrutinize it and challenge it? They did exactly what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I've seen the paper. It's excellent. This is a very good paper. Does that make it right? No. But what mm-hmm. do you want to do to find out if it's right? You want to put it in front of peers out in public and let that discussion happen. And now it's gone, and it's not just, you know, if they hadn't gotten it published, it might exist on a preprint server, right? Um, but presumably, since it was published, it's now simply not available at all, except via uh, Wayback Machine. Right. And so all of this is to say that we have a consensus about the safety of the vaccines, about the ineffectiveness of early out-of-patent treatments. But that consensus is built out of intense coercion, Mm -hmm. right? We've had people have their livelihoods interrupted. We have people's reputations threatened. We have people's peer-reviewed papers removed from the web. The point is, if you're looking at that consensus and saying, can that many doctors be wrong, you have to ask yourself the question, well, which doctors am I not hearing from and why? How many doctors are afraid to say what they know? How many doctors are uh, being threatened with the loss of their jobs, reputations, careers, everything? This consensus is not a consensus, right? And the problem is that a lot of, frankly, high-quality thinkers who don't happen to have experience in science aren't spotting this. And they're simply looking at the number of voices all saying the same thing and saying it's got to be right. It's got to be right, and that is that is also built on a foundation of can we just get this over with already? This is you know this is twenty what twenty months in. This is how, you know how many months in, and we're still living under this this terrible cloud uh, that we're 
is SARS-CoV-2, and it doesn't seem to be ending, even though, even though there are countries, for instance, in Europe that have said, you know what, excuse me, but you know, fuck it. We're just, we're, we're going to go back to normal. This thing is going to be endemic. And that is, you and I differ a little bit here, but I have, you know, since we published that thing in my Substack in what, end of July, um, I have come to think that at this point it's too late. We're not going to eradicate it. It's going to be endemic. And, uh, and early treatment is therefore going to be the response that is necessary as people are running into it. Some countries are doing that. And some countries like the US, like Canada, like Australia, like New Zealand are having the opposite response, the quite the opposite response. And except actually there's, um, there's something I want to talk about near the end, and maybe this is the place, but um, some places in Australia are actually beginning to say, well, maybe we're just going to have to to deal with this. And frankly, what that means is um, is not clear. Um, and you know, how do we how do we deal with the fear that has been inculcated in just about everyone? Yeah, everyone is making decisions based on fear. Well, I want to be really careful with the idea that this is going to become endemic, right? I know lots of incredibly well-informed people who believe that. But A, I'm not even sure what it means. I know how it's heard, right? It's heard as this is going to become an annual circulating blah, 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 blah. And that does not necessarily fit with what it means, Mm -hmm. Um, it is, you know, for example, I've used the example of rabies. Is rabies endemic? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, is it impacting our lives? Yeah. Not substantially. We've got it so thoroughly under control in the first world that, you know, if we have to accept that level of endemism with SARS-CoV-2, so be it. Um, but I'm not even convinced that we're dealing with that. For one thing, because it is ever more probable that we are dealing with the product of a set of human experiments, mm -hmm. we don't actually know what this thing does long term. And we should be managing it with the best tools that we have. And so I agree with you. People are reacting. They are re reacting reflexively from the idea that, well, let's just get this over with already. How mm -hmm. are you going to do that? Well, the best tool is obviously vaccines. And the answer is, no, no, no. We've got a whole spectrum of tools. What we really need are very smart people thoroughly empowered to challenge each other with an obligation to challenge, yes. right? To hash out, all right, what is the best approach? And how do we best apply the resources at our disposal globally so that if this is going to be endemic, it is well managed. And if it is not going to be endemic, we get to driving it to extinction, but we're not even having that conversation because everybody is skipping so many steps of the logic. Can I actually, I, I think this is the place to add in. Sure. Um, Zach, if you would show my screen here for a moment. This is from uh, an Australian paper, the Courier Mail. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it may be Brisbane, although I'm not actually positive where in Australia it's coming out of. The headline, this is from six days ago. The headline is, don't freak out. Catching COVID after you are vaccinated improves immunity. Subheadline: If you are fully vaccinated against COVID, the next step to improve your immunity may be to actually catch the virus. Now, at first pass, this looks like complete lunacy and looks like they're just, you know, throwing up their arms and, you know, saying anything they feel like saying at any moment, because that has certainly not been the approach in the past. 
There is also built into this the um, idea that we are hearing, but I have yet to see any data to support the idea of quote-unquote superimmunity, wherein the acquired immunity you get from the actual disease um, is enhanced by also getting the vaccine, and now they're arguing vice versa, like that there is some enhanced immunity from actually having both exposures as opposed to just having had the disease versus just having had the vaccine. Put that aside for a moment, whether or not that is true or not. It's hard to imagine what the immunological mechanism might be, but you know, you think not? Okay. Oh, I think I think it is almost certain that this is true at some tiny level. At some tiny level. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, that that actually doesn't necessarily matter here. What what does matter is if if in Australia, a country that has been going, you know, guns blazing on everyone absolutely must get vaccinated. And what they're saying is, and you know, again, another thing that is that this is hinging on is the idea that having been vaccinated, uh, we're, we're now admitting that actually it doesn't really stop transmission very much. But what what they're saying is that it will reduce um, the impact of the disease on you. Maybe true, maybe not. Uh, but if that is if if that is the case, they're saying, look, you're going to run into the disease. They're basically assuming endemism. You're going to run into the disease. Just just deal with it. You'll be fine. Now, you aren't necessarily going to be fine. There are people who've died after getting COVID, after having been fully vaccinated. And there are lots and lots of people who get COVID who do just fine, right? It has an incredibly variable effect on people. But to me, what this, what this says, if we are to take it at face value, is, okay, then, vaccinated or not, you're going to run into this. What we need is early treatment. What we need is to use the wide array of drugs that we have available to us uh, to deal with treating people as they show up. And hey, it looks like uh, vaccinated people and unvaccinated people are both likely to run into this. And really, there's no reason to be um, pitting those populations against one another in the political sphere, in the media, unless what you're doing is not does not have anything to do with public health or about COVID at all, unless what you were trying to do is create division among populations. Create division among populations or sell one product um, uh, yes. to and, the you know, exclusion I don't, of others. I don't know enough about the recent politics in Australia to know, but if that headline came out in the US, um, I would be responding with, okay, clearly we've moved from Trump derangement syndrome to COVID derangement syndrome. And there's just, there, there's no ability to have a conversation about this that has nuance that says, terrible virus, terrible disease, let's figure out how best to move forward because actually we have shared fate here, people. Yeah. Um, I would add to your, your list of things we should obviously be doing, you know, the elephant in the room increasingly is properly preparing with vitamin D, for example, right? Oh. This is the lowest lowest hanging fruit on the tree, and yet we don't recommend it, which suggests that we are not actually all that concerned at the public health level. We are apparently either completely inept or um, not that concerned about your actual health, and we're doing other things. I would say, I mean, so obviously adding things to a list that is the simplest makes it less simple, <laughs> but um, the three maybe top things on my list of what uh, what a country or a world that was actually interested in public health in light of this particular virus and disease would be to encourage um, supplementation of vitamin D in any population where uh, they are likely to be deficient in it, which is to say um, the the higher latitudes you're higher longitudes you're at no higher latitudes you're at rather and um, the more likely you are to be spending time inside which 
also correlates. That's one. Um, recommending that people go outside, that people spend time outside, that people get their exercise outside, that people socialize outside. Yep. Not just for vitamin D reasons, but because this virus isn't transmitting outside still. And then third, and this does take resources and it does take money and it will take time, but in improving the filtration systems of indoor air. Because in you know the smaller the space you're in with other people, the more likely are that you are breathing in air that they have exhaled. This is part of why, this is a big part of why this virus and like all respiratory viruses are more likely to spread inside. So we need to be focusing on filtration and, you know, Airlines are doing it, and yes, those are very small spaces and and very you know very easy to control. But we have the technology, and it will take some time. It will take some money, but this is the way to make people more safe going forward. Every tool at our disposal. Mm -hmm. It really ought to be. Um, all right. So if we can return for a second to uh, the question of where we are, we've got something that masquerades as consensus, but mm -hmm. the point is whatever that thing is, it is coercion-dependent. Coercion-dependent consensus, the implication of it is roughly the opposite of uh, of an actual consensus. It's closer to a hostage video in which somebody says some things because there's a gun pointed at them. Mm -hmm. um, it is also, uh, you know, we've heard Chomsky's phrase, the manufacture of consent is resonant. But there's a way in which we are seeing the inverse of many things. And even though it's an easy extrapolation, we don't get the implication. And so um, the manufacture of consent is the mirror image of um, the destruction of dissent, which is what we are mm. seeing. Those who dissent about uh, either you know, sex and gender issues and claim that there's some substantial difference between males and females, mm -hmm. right? Or those who uh, claim things against the public health narrative are punished severely, resulting in a much tinier number of people willing to say these things out loud. And in fact, lots of people will lie to themselves. Um, so, you know, the destruction of dissent is, is, uh, yep. is key to how this works. Um, so I'm not sure how much how much more there is to say. I did have a thought about, uh, in light of the role that the you know that we have we have seen played by YouTube in particular, it did occur to me that there is room for uh, us to do YouTube a favor, and oh. uh, we've done a little pro bono work generating uh, a slogan uh, for the people who generate the um, the community guidelines. And the slogan is going to be something like YouTube community guidelines because you can't handle the truth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Yes. All right. I think, I think that works. Yep. Um, yep. But anyway, yeah, let's, uh, you know, let's put this on pause for now, but I do want to continue to pay attention to the question about consensus and things that look a lot like consensus, but mean the opposite because the rubber meets the road right there. Well, that's good. We will actually, I do intend for us to return to that next week. And um, before we move on to the next thing I want to talk about, did you want to talk at all about why framing this as a free speech issue is an error? Or did you want to save that? No, I think I think it's actually, it, it's worth doing. Yep. You know, and it's something that we said uh, with some regularity back in the days when uh, we were 
fighting false accusations of racism and the like. Um, but the, I think the idea is we are seeing the evolution of a new type of cancel culture or the way it actually looks to, to me and I think to us is it's the exact same tactics of the cancel culture that we encountered with respect to wokeism mm -hmm. applied in a totally different context, applied in a scientific context. And it's very jarring because many of the people who, you know, understood completely what was going on in the case of wokeism have switched sides and are now doing the canceling, right? And that is that is a very disturbing um, phenomenon because for one thing, you would imagine once you've seen the playbook and it's been aimed at you, that you would be almost immune to deploying that playbook against anybody else on any topic. And you would actually say to yourself something like, well, if I was in the right, why is this playbook even necessary? Right? Being in the, being in the right gives you a lot of uh, advantage in the world of scientific arguments. It should not be necessary to deploy these absolutely draconian mm -hmm. um, tools. Yeah. Why cheat if truth is on your side? Yeah. Why, why do you need to cheat? Right. And of course, you know, the first answer that, that will be given is because they're, you know, their lives at stake. And so basically the implication is that this is a noble lie. On yeah. the other hand, how much does it look like a noble lie? If it was a noble lie, wouldn't you tack on to these draconian bits of nonsense? Hey, why don't you get yourself some vitamin D? Mm -hmm. Right. If this was a noble lie that was really about an obsession with protecting people's health, there's lots of stuff that we would be doing that we're not. So maybe this isn't a noble lie. It's just a lie. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but in any case, this is another place where we're looking at the mirror image of something. The destruction of dissent uh, is a mirror image of uh, the manufacture of consent. And in this case, we know it is written into the, um, the DNA of the West, as it were that the free exchange of ideas, which is encoded in the concept of free speech, is very, very important, right? And the problem is that it is also easily caricatured because it sounds like, oh, you want your speech rights, right? You really want to be heard? You're an attention whore, right? <laughs> no, free speech is important because it's how we hash out what's true and what we, what's best, what we right. should do. And so the point is, there's a whole slew of attacks that aren't really about your ability to speak. They're about whether anybody can choose to hear you, right? Mm -hmm. Interfering with people's ability to find you. If there's a large audience that wants to hear what you have to say, and it just so happens that the people who own the platform that dictates whether or not they can find you don't like what you're saying, and the point is, well, you can still speak but they can't hear you, mm -hmm. right? So um, anyway, we need some, we need at least- a yeah, Speaking into a manufactured void, which is rather like a manufactured consensus, speaking into a manufactured void is not what the framers of the constitution had in mind when they were protecting free speech. Oh my goodness. It's like speech canceling headphones. <laughs> you speak all you want and the headphones render it silent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so somehow people need to be aware that it is actually the, the real right that is important is the right to choose what is worth listening to, which doesn't mean I'm choosing it because I agree with it. Maybe I want to hear it to find out whether I agree with it. Right. You know, maybe yeah. that's how I find out that I disagree with it uh, rather than effectively being told 
you can't hear this because you disagree with it. Right. And that, you know, that's not new here, right? Like you drive underground actual hate speech and it empowers it because people will do it outside of anyone's sight and then it will emerge um, at some point later, you know, far better armed, frankly. Um, and yeah, so I think just to just to rephrase what you've just said, there should never be a, cons- a compunction to speak, uh, just as there should not be a compunction to listen. So you know, compelled speech we know uh, isn't isn't appropriate. Compelled listening also isn't isn't either. Some people have been confused about this. They're both anathema to a free society. Um, and so, as as you have just said, there should always be freedom to speak. There should also always be. Uh, freedom to listen, especially in this era of the virtual public square, because that's that's the era we live in—the virtual public square, um, to which you may not know how to show up, because you know we're we're here for now at you know noon thirty Pacific time on Saturdays, most Saturdays. Uh, but how how would you find us if you didn't know that, right? So uh, providing to fact checkers fact checkers who are it's just it's just a modern word for censors uh, who think they're doing you a service the ability to say yeah you know they can talk all they want but we're not going to let anyone find them is a you know frankly a disingenuous response that is exactly antithetical to what the framers of the founders of this country had in mind right and you know of course Imagine the Constitution if you actually had to spell all of this out, right? Right. Right. You know, okay, what are we going to do if there's ever an era in which there's something called fact checkers who look for misinformation where misinformation doesn't mean it's not a fact, right? right? And there's a capacity for noise canceling to render speech uh, useless and unhearable. Yeah, it's... uh, it's you know it, it's an endless arms race, and really the point is, uh, the basic principle is still the same, and it either applies or it doesn't. Yes. And um, uh, we are stuck with a whole bunch of brand new bottlenecks that are being exerted to uh, I don't know to shape our behavior. Indeed. Well, this next thing I wanted to raise is is related, and you have not seen this yet. Uh, there's an article in Spiked from a couple of weeks ago, actually, by our. Um, our acquaintance, uh, Frank Ferretti, the excellent Frank Ferretti. Uh, and it's, um, it's actually, I think it's either an excerpt or uh, um, related to his new book, uh, which we have not read yet because I just ran into this today. So it's called 100, you can show my screen, actually, Zach here. Um, 100 Years of the Culture War. Uh, today's battles over identity and values have deep roots. And he does his um, excellent Frank Ferretti analysis here, but I just wanted to read two... Two partial paragraphs here from early in this long essay, which he calls Creating a New Man. Towards the end of the 19th century, political movements, modernizing capitalists, and assorted intellectuals came to believe that a rapidly changing world required changes to the ways in which young people were socialized. As they saw it, a new world needed new men. And to become truly modern, young people had to be distanced from the traditions and values of the past. Old-fashioned moral norms had to be displaced by scientifically authorized values. One reason why this process did not acquire an explicit ideological form was it because it was promoted through the apparently neutral language of science. And maybe that, you know, the entire essay is well worth reading, as I imagine the book is as well. But this uh, apparently neutral language of science, he is pointing to in, you know, just beginning of the Industrial Revolution as effectively being grabbed and weaponized then 
in order to uh, make change in people's attitudes and indeed in the way that they were raising their children uh, by basically pretending that this isn't ideology because we know what ideology looks like. It has, it has names, institutions, and science is different. And you know, the scientific process is the way that we can exclude bias, that we can minimize bias from our understanding of the world. But what exactly what we've been talking about here is when you have manufactured consensus and the, you know, the people wearing lab coats speaking as if for all science with results that they have generated behind closed doors where you are not allowed to see the analysis, that's not science, but that is it is potentially a tool of anyone who wants to um, create consensus and be an ideologue. Right. And, you know, what does it say? So some thing, let's call it the blue team for the moment, mm -hmm. wants to claim the mantle of science, right? It wants to say, look, the enlightened people are telling you what we need to do because they've carefully considered the puzzle, right? right. The enlightened people. The enlightened people have now taken the category of misinformation and smuggled in facts that are just not discussable because they they are claimed to violate the public health narrative which has been simplified for the little people i guess right but at the same time right you cannot listen to anybody who says well there are certain things that might be factual that are going to be declared medical misinformation for your own safety mm -hmm. right if that entity does not look at the claim that men and women do not differ in strength and say, wait a minute, that's just wrong. You can't call that hate speech. That's just a fact. You can't, you, you can't declare a fact hate speech. If it doesn't counter that, then the point is, why is anybody trusted? Right. Right? If it can't spot the obvious garbage, right, if it's going to declare the world flat tomorrow— Mm -hmm. Then the point is, oh, actually, I get that it looks like the scientific authority. I get that it wants you to think it is, but it's not behaving like that. Guess what else they're claiming? Yeah, it's, right. it's behaving like like it's been captured by something that isn't all that interested in the truth or your health and well-being or facts or protecting the people who really deserve to be protected or any of those things. And I mean, I, I think it's it's chilling and terrifying for people who are otherwise able to see this sort of inconsistency. Precisely because, because science is taught so badly, by and large, at the K through 12 level, and in numeracy, and there's no word comparable in science, like unscience. What would what would the word be? I don't know. So let me just in, let me let me use numeracy as a stand-in for both a lack of ability, a lack of comfort and ability to do math and to think scientifically even though that's really not what enumeracy usually means. Let me use that as a stand-in here. Enumeracy is almost celebrated in elite high culture circles. Illiteracy is, of course, not. No one, no one would survive a cocktail party among coastal elites by claiming that they're actually kind of functionally illiterate, ha, 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 but of course it doesn't matter, does it? Whereas those sorts of claims, I don't, I never did. I was never very interested. But, um, you know, the, to the degree that I'm familiar with what kinds of conversations happen at such at such places and in academia in general, even in academia and, you know, faculty meetings that just have, you know, a wide swath of faculty, it is acceptable to say such a thing where you simply replace the word illiteracy with enumeracy. 
it is understood that most people are not just functionally enumerate, wherein here I'm including the, the lack of understanding of what the scientific process is, but that it's kind of a badge of honor. So put that aside for the moment and say, okay, in, in that world in which you certainly can't claim to be illiterate, but it's kind of amusing, a little bit funny, and almost even... Um, almost even honorable to be a bit enumerate because it means that you weren't that kind of person in it, school. It, it's considered endearing. It's endearing, yes. Now now we have a moment when authorities are not making claims about racism, which everyone, no matter, you know, no matter what you were schooled in, if you are smart and have your eyes open, can see that the new claims of racism are nothing like what racism used to look like, and this is clearly batshit crazy. But now we have the new authorities making claims that sound scientific and they've got the degrees and they've got the garb and they don't, they are not presenting data and they're not presenting analysis, but the vast majority of people, the talking heads, the, 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 the elites who are creating the media that everyone is listening to know that they wouldn't be able to assess the data or the analysis, even if it were present. And so as a result, they largely haven't noticed that it's missing. Yeah, They haven't noticed that it's missing. And so when we say to people, look, here's what, here's what we are seeing in the actual literature, and here's how we can't compare it to the claims being made in public policy, because they never share their data or analysis. They won't show it to us, and that's not how science works. That, that sentence almost doesn't even register. It doesn't land. Right. It doesn't land. The, the assum- so it's a little bit like... Um, there's this assumption that harms that haven't been demonstrated do not exist rather than you've just intervened in a complex system. There will be harms. You don't know what they are yet, but you should be cautious, right? So it's the inversion of the precautionary principle. In the same way, there is this assumption that that which I cannot evaluate is probably done right. Right. Which is, a, if you've looked into these things, it's a preposterous assumption. It's hard to get these things perfectly right, mm-hmm. right? To get them basically right is what is what people should be shooting for. But the number of times that you go in there looking for it to have been done basically right, and either there's a giant black box that you can't evaluate, or the claim that's in the abstract is not actually justified by the work that was done, any of these things. Or there was never a hypothesis, and therefore it's data mining, right. and it or went the, backwards. The one you can't see in which the hypothesis is claimed to have preceded the work when in fact it is the result of the observations done during the work that was not hypothetical in the first place. Therefore, there wasn't a test of the hypothesis and what you have here is an observation that is still in want of a test. Right, which is basically a way of cheating the career system, Mm -hmm. right? You you claim to have tested a hypothesis that still needs a test, but you misinform everybody who then reads your paper and thinks that the hypothesis came first. All of these things are standard, very, very common. And the problem is the assumption that they aren't there because you can't evaluate whether they are is just simply illogical. Yeah. And uh, I think liberals more likely than conservatives because liberals have been eager to adopt the mantle of science and to become secular and to say yes I'm not religious I'm beyond that so what you know where wherein do I find my meaning and how do I how do I assess reality in the world well it's through science that doesn't mean that all of those people who are claiming the mantle of science actually you know have a capability to think through what a scientific assessment 
or what scientific evidence would look like. And, and, and most of them would, would say that. But we have, we have a situation wherein one ideology has replaced another. And this, you know, frankly, this is part of what, uh, we, we talk about this in the book too, this is part of what Hayek back in the early 20th century was objecting to with his, with his coining of the term scientism. Where you know he was saying basically you know the the modes of science are being used in places where they don't belong, and we have actually sort of you know expanded that term a little bit in the in the book when we talk about it and said you know but also also there's a whole lot of talk as if things are science where science very much belongs but science actually isn't what is being done, and yeah that probably warrants you know that second thing probably warrants a different term but they're both they're both inappropriate and they're both deranging us. Yes, they're deranging us, and there's so much at stake that it, it, you know, one has to be on their guard. Yeah, right. There's going to be garbage in here because there's so much at stake, and so the question is, well, where is it, and who is it fooling? Exactly. Um. All right. This week, in I'm now looking at my this week in absurd and appalling. I was hoping to bring. <laughs> I was hoping to bring you two things, you, the audience. And now I have I lost- I had forgotten that they were there. You, you had you? No. no. Uh, almost. Okay. I was in the zone. You were okay. It was hard to tell from the outside, I'm sure, but- No, no. No, I, 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 I had it. Um, so I have to Google this because I somehow have, I don't know, this was so appalling that even, even Safari um, uh, blocked it from me. Took off my tab. Here we go. Uh, okay. Oh, this, yes. This week in Absurd and Appalling, point number one. Yeah. Uh, we have Teen Vogue having published an article that included an image uh, that is anatomy of a non-prostate owner. And I don't have very much more to say about this except no. <laughs> just, just, again, apologies, but just... Fucking no, no. Women are being erased. This is insanity. This is that, you know, not, again, not just the tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people who are actually trans and just trying to live their lives with some privacy and dignity, um, but that that other somewhat but largely non-overlapping population, I would argue, of trans activists who would have us disappear reality in favor of their desire to, I don't even know what in some cases I do and it's not appropriate. And in some cases it's just about power and messing with people's heads. Yeah. But you would say that as a birthing and chest feeding person. I would. And as a non, <laughs> non prostate owner, I don't even know what a non prostate is. I mean, I guess I have one. <laughs> Well, see, that's where your mathematical literacy, I think, is leading you astray. Well, I just, I actually think that I'm also a better grammarian than whatever, whoever the idiots at Dean Vogue are, because not, I think, I think what they mean is non-owner of a prostate. Non. <laughs> that is evoking some song from the '80s that I'm having <laughs> trouble placing. Okay, so that's point one of. Oh, it's from, owner of a lonely heart. That was it. It's not even that close. Okay. Owner, okay, so owner of a lonely Which prostate. Is a pretty good song. Would, I, it's sure to be the next Teen Vogue thing. Owner of a lonely prostate. How you two can. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not going to finish that sentence. I have it in my head, though. I'm not yes. going to finish it. No. Okay. Um, second item from this week in Absurd and Appalling <laughs> is, uh, oh, my God. Um, another thing from Zero Hedge this week. You may show this, Zachary. Seattle school cancels Halloween pumpkin parade, says it, quotes, marginalizes student of students of color. Oh, my God. Well, it does <laughs> marginalize summer squashes, right? So, I can't, I can't <laughs> do this. Oh, my God. So, don't show up my screen again, Zach, because there's all sorts of ads that somehow my ad blocker isn't taken care of. Uh, but I'm going to read from my screen here. Just, this is from this article by Tyler Durden in Zero Hedge about this this, this marginalization of so summer squashes. T- yes. Tyler Durden is a is a, a pseudonym. Yes, I know. I yeah. Know. Okay. Um, Benjamin Franklin Day, BF Day Elementary School, which serves the neighborhood in a northeastern suburb of Seattle, decided to discontinue the pumpkin parade holiday tradition this year on the advice of the school's racial equity team, according to Seattle-based conservative radio host Jason Rance. In an October 8th newsletter to parents obtained by Rance, the school explained the rationale behind the decision to cancel the pumpkin parade, which traditionally involves a procession of children in Halloween costumes. Quote, Halloween events create a situation where some students must be excluded for their beliefs, financial status, or life experience. End quote. The letter read, quote, Costume parties often become an uncomfortable event for many children, and they distract students and staff from learning. Large events create changes in schedules with loud noise levels and crowds. Some students experience overstimulation, while others must deal with complex feelings of exclusion. It's uncomfortable and upsetting for kids. End quote. Instead of the Halloween festivities, students at BF Day Elementary may participate in fall events that are considered more inclusive, such as... You ready? Oh, yeah. Quote. Thematic units of study about the fall. Or review autumnal artwork while, quote, sharing all the cozy feelings of the season. What? <laughs> right. So this this sounds like the idea was okay. We have to make Halloween problematic. Let's spitball a list of the best critiques we can come up with, and that was the damn list. I don't personally. I don't care about Halloween. Yeah. Um, it was never my my mother and. Uh, her dearest friend, who was also a, a, a very good friend of mine, used to make me these amazing costumes, and they were um, they were amazing and wonderful. But Halloween itself just never did it for me. It was it, I, I, I don't care about Halloween. This isn't personal. I'm not taking this personally. The idea that some no one should be able to participate because not everyone can participate would be bad enough. Bad enough, right? But this is actually taking it one step further. No one can participate because some people might be made uncomfortable by it. This is, again, they are building, they're trying to create the illusion that 100% consensus can be created. And unless and until you have 100% consensus on any given issue, you can do nothing. You are not allowed to do a thing. So what is a Halloween parade? A bunch of kids dressed up and, and marching around. Like at one level, who cares? But at another level, what they are replacing it with is thematic units of study about the fall, reviewing autumnal artwork while sharing all the cozy feelings of the season. This sounds like the same old, same old garbage school that we have been spoon-fed 
that are much better for a particular kind of girl style of learning than most boy style of styles of learning. Sit still, be nice, raise your hand when you have to pee, and have no ability to embody anything that you're learning ever. Well, and we're making we're, we're guaranteeing that no one is going to be able to be an adult. Right. No, we guarantee this. It. This is like the last stage uh, of learned helplessness yeah. because. What the idea, you know, is it possible that somebody could put on a Halloween costume that would make you pretty fucking uncomfortable? They did, you, they're not even going there. Right. But that's, that's not even the let's subjection. Let's just say, yes, obviously there are Halloween costumes that would make people uncomfortable, right? How do you draw that line? Not all that freaking easy, actually, right? Yeah. Um, but the point is, and this was the point for that Erica Christakis made. I was going to um, say she's Yale. the best thing that ever happened to Halloween. But um, <laughs> yeah, but 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 the, people will say, well, that was for college students, and that made sense. But okay, no. the point no. is, yeah. we are teaching a lesson, right? I don't even think it's inadvertent. But if it's inadvertent, that's about the best thing you could say for it. The lesson we are teaching mm -hmm. is that the problem, anything in which there's any possibility of anyone stepping over any line that might make anyone else uncomfortable, the proper thing is top-down governance, upend the whole thing, and put some utopian nonsense in its place. And the mm -hmm. point is, what are the chances? I, don't, I can't even remember what you said about celebrating fall or something. That's not going to be anything. There's going to be cozy feelings of the season, autumnal artwork, thematic units of study about the fall. Right. And the and you know who- Which won't include any study of Halloween, or maybe that's how we should do it. You know whose rights are being trampled here? The rights of the people who will be disappointed because there's no Halloween thing. Right. Right. And those people do exist in large numbers. As a matter of fact, I would bet they're the majority of people. You're going to trample the rights of the mm -hmm. majority so that you don't- hurt the feelings of some children who probably don't even which, exist. Exactly, who may be imaginary. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which, you know, which tells us this isn't about the children. Right. Just this like, is about power. Just like what is going on more globally is does not appear to be about public health. This is about, this. it literally somehow, and I couldn't tell you how this is true, but somehow this is about buzzkill as an ideology. Mm -hmm. Anything you like, that feels familiar. You're not having normal. fun, are you? Right. Anything that's logical, right? The idea of going on a date with somebody because you're attracted to them and they happen to be of exactly the sex that you would predict you'd be exactly. most likely to be attracted to, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, is going to be made thoroughly unfun. And the whole mm -hmm. point is, I think there are some people who aren't having fun, which you know, we could feel bad about that, and we could say, what can we do about those people who aren't having fun? Instead, we're going to hand them the keys to civilization, mm -hmm. and they're going to kill everybody else's fun in a search for equity. Pretty much. Pretty much, right? Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. This reminds me, actually, of the penultimate thing that I was hoping to get to today. Um, just as the weather cools, we've begun to see on our local next door reminders that um, that sometimes critters will move in on top of or inside your car's chassis as uh, as you slip, slept um, in order to get warm and that you want to check for squirrels and mice. This, literally, this was a next door thing that I saw today. Okay. Um, and this, this was accompanied by um, <laughs> this image um, from Newport, here on the Oregon coast, in it's which a sea lion, isn't it? It's a sea lion <laughs> that is crawled not 
under the hood because no. probably couldn't get into uh, the car, but on top of this person's car, and uh, they were being reminded that they needed to check for sea lions I, before driving off with a sea lion on their car. I have felt crazy since I got my driver's license, but I never start the car without checking the hood for sea lions. I know. I know. And you were looking at me at first like I was I was not making sense. But that in part because, you know, you start you learn to drive as did I in LA, where, you know, the weather doesn't get that cold. And so you, it, it's just a cursory glance for sea lions. It's not a difficult check. No, it's not. Right. But not. I mean, we don't yet have the check sea lion light. That could tell you, oh. you know, because you could just go, if you if the light mm-hmm. wasn't on and you had reason to believe that the system that checks for sea lions was intact, then you could just skip that part and be on the road sooner. But <laughs> <laughs> So you are currently, having already successfully taught one of our children to drive in the process of teaching the second child to drive, and I think, um, man, your checklist before actually starting the engine and going must be... Pretty lengthy. It is an extensive... I have, I have said to you, to all three of you, you and our two boys, you are on lead on the teaching to drive part. And uh, I, I have not been there for the checklist, but I, I now imagine that this is why you sit in the driveway for 45 minutes before going anywhere. Yes, my, my driving school has a, a philosophy of benign neglect <laughs> in which... No, this, actually, this is actually true. The, the way you learn to drive, the way you learn to drive is through experience. And so my purpose is to interfere minimally Mm -hmm. and to allow you to make mistakes that do not result in the dinging up of the vehicle, the harming of other people or their property, any of those things. And as long as I can get that stuff off the table, Mm -hmm. then the point is actually you do need to make some mistakes in order to figure out how to get the thing done. But none um, of those mistakes should involve pulling out of the driveway with a sea lion on your hood. Right. No, exactly. Hence the checklist. Yes. Now the question is, if you were, let's say you skipped that, right? You were in a hurry or something. As I have been sometimes. And it turned out, you found out, let's say you're on the highway and you realize, oh, I know why I can't see. (laughs) There's a sea lion on the hood. What do you do then? Got it. Right? You pull over, you don't pull over on the highway. Presumably you're better. You stop short so the sea lion (laughs) flies off. That is a terrible idea. Yeah, see that that you know what you're doing there. You're externalizing. That's your sea lion. I know. I'm a yeah. sea lion externalizer. That's terrible. No, you want to get the sea lion safely off the highway, mm-hmm. right? No, that that is your that is part of the social contract. It's not between you and explicitly. Yeah. No, oh, you, and you and the, the other people. I mean, yes, it's 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 oh. it, you know it is an extension of that concept to the wildlife, but yes. <laughs> This is what happens when we spend a week off air. Yes. Uh, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> One last thing uh, before we before we say goodbye. Not for a week, but for fifteen minutes or so before coming back for the Q and A. Okay. <laughs> we received this wonderful email from a woman who said I could share her email, and I'm just going to obscure her identity. Uh, this is from a couple weeks back. Heather, hi. I've been listening to you and Brett for almost a year now. My sister turned me on to your show, Dark Horse. I love you guys. I belong to the Daily Wire and saw the show this morning. I never really reach out to folks like you because I know how busy you folks are and don't have time for just random emails from everyone. But I got emotional over this show. It was so good. Honestly, I used to think of myself my entire life as being liberal, but I was so disgusted by what was going on, I've moved away and I've understood some conservative views more for the first time in my life. But what moved me so much was when you and Brett said we need to look each other in the eye and accept our different views on just a lot of things in life and respect each other, that it gives us such power. 
and it opens our thoughts and minds to the other person's view. Heather, I was spilling coffee on my kitchen table because I was missing my mouth. I couldn't take my eyes away from the show. I'm going to buy your book and keep you and Brett in my prayers. I admire you and Brett and appreciate the work you both do. Thank you for being so flipping awesome. Wow. That is great. That is, that is great. And, um, we try to see everything that comes in. We do miss some of it and we certainly don't respond to the vast majority of it, but we do appreciate, we appreciate that. We appreciate knowing, uh, how, how much people are responding to what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's a little bit like you don't get caught speeding every time you speed, but you know, you get caught enough, uh, that it, causes you not to do it we don't see everything that comes in but each one of those that we do see stands in for a bunch that we don't see you know both positive and negative and Mm -hmm. uh anyway it does give us a sense for what impact we're having in the world and it's really really gratifying to hear something like that especially from somebody you can just tell by the way she's written it that there are things on which we substantially disagree and you know how much that matters it doesn't matter in fact it enhances us yeah that's right that's right um good i think we're i think we're there i believe so i believe so so we're gonna take a take a break for as long as it takes to get the uh the q a links up on odyssey and already up on youtube and we'll be back with our live q a uh ask questions at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com email any logistical questions not questions for us to answer in the q a to darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com consider joining our patreons and especially please Read the book. It's now actually available everywhere, uh, and it's in libraries as well throughout um, throughout at least the U.S. I, I assume and hope elsewhere as well, and um, and it's going to be translated into a lot of languages. Um, right. If you if Lithuanian is your first language, hang tight. It's coming. Yeah, it's, that's going to be a little little while, but uh, but yep, that's happening. As are some other um, some other terrific translations. Yep, Australian. We're actually going to hold back on that one. The offer wasn't good enough. No. Yeah. Uh, okay, anything Anything else to say? I don't think so. I think we've done it. All right. Until next time, be good to the ones you love and eat good food and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>